When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Five, four, three, two. Hello and welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of iNews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. Um, it's been a few days since you've heard from us. So I apologize for that. Uh, it's mostly my fault. But uh, that is what happens, unfortunately, when you get into your 30s and all of your friends start getting married. At the same time, in better news, I have been able to track down Calvin Beton, uh, still out in New York, who's been enjoying the sights and sounds of New York City on a humid September day. Uh, Calvin, uh, as you just said to me, what a week. Um, Maybe the best place to start is with the most recent uh, occurrence. It's kind of a low note, I suppose. A heartbreaking third round defeat in the US Open. I mean, proud to be there, but I mean, you must feel a bit like you you got pretty close. Yeah, it was um, it was rough yesterday. Um, it was it was a great atmosphere, it's a great experience. I mean, by the end, I don't know if any of our listeners watched it, but there were probably about a thousand people around the court by the end of the match. I think um, there were people watching, sort of standing on walls to try and get a watch. Um, and it was a great atmosphere. It was a great experience for the lads. Um, and it was just tight. It was just tight. We were never actually that close to winning it, which I think would have made it even worse. We weren't ever <laughs> in touching distance. So strange as it seems, because it was 7-6 in the third, we, um, Henry and Jules, um, they served second in the set. So they were always catching up. And then in the tie, the actual closest that they came to winning the match was 8-5 down in the tiebreak. Mm. So they were five points away from winning the match. So... Um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, but prior to that, two matches were great. It's just, it's just a great tournament. I think it's a fantastic tournament and to be winning matches there is, um, it's just a real career highlight for me and for the lads, um, I think. And what stands out to me as well is again, you know, say what you will about America and, um, and how they hold their tournaments. The people love tennis. They really do. Um, they'll Mm. watch anything. Hmm. Um, tell me a bit about. I mean, you obviously came through. Uh, what was it? The the French in the second round. Ali and Barrere and, and Blumberg and Johnson. You won really comfortably. I mean, it, we sometimes get so carried away with the success that Henry and Jules have had over the past 
12 months or uh, yeah 18 months i suppose that we don't sometimes talk about the actual tennis they play i mean what was it that that got them so far what have they done so well in new york this week um i mean they just serve great they both serve great and they're both great servers partners um so they're just difficult to break they lost they hadn't they didn't lose serve at all in the first two matches i think they probably had two break points against them maybe in two matches uh, yesterday we lost serve twice but um against good returners um and yeah it's they they're just very very difficult to break mm-hmm. and then they you know they can sneak a break or they're good in tie breaks that's what basically what happened against the two french lads that in the first set the two french lads were probably the better team but it got to a tie break and tie, the dynamics change in a tie break you don't have to win four points to break you have to win one point to get a mini mm-hmm. break um and that's that's where things change. So yeah, um, the French match, the, the match against the French lads was tough. They're, they're obviously both very, very talented tennis players, um, Quinton Halise and Gregory Barrere. Um And the French always know how to play a bit of doubles anyway, even if they don't play much on tour because they play so many league matches and that kind of thing. Um, and like I say, we, Henry and Jules didn't play great in that match, um, but they, they won the points that mattered. I said to them before they went on that they can either win it by playing excellent tennis and playing good tennis or they can take it to the trenches and that's what they end up having to do mm. um first round was first round was good they played well in the first set although i'm not sure steve johnson had um real desire to be out there in the second set um <laughs> which was good for a wild card wasn't it um, <laughs> well yeah george and i have already been talking about wild cards this week um, lots of people were interested and got involved and got in touch when we were talking about venus williams getting her wild card and uh, quite how useful that was for anyone i mean involved. yeah it's been a lot of conjecture especially on the double side as well because um a, an american pair reese stalder and evan king who've done very well recently they made the last 16 at wimbledon um were told that they wouldn't need a wild card uh because they'd if they signed then they'd have enough. Um, and if, if not, then they'd get one. And in that they didn't give them one. And they were basically only about five or six places out, I think, of, of getting in. Hmm. And they gave wild cards to a load of basically lower-ranked singles players um, and some college players and some juniors, which was pretty rough going for, for Reestelder and Evan King because they've, you know, they've, they've put the work in and they've, they've put a shift in to get where they are. And they're, they're both their talented players. Hmm. Um- Actually, just before we talk a bit more about New York, Calvin, I've had a question that, that's been sitting on my mind for a while um, from Anista, and uh, I'd appreciate, I think you'd have some interesting thoughts on it. So it, it's kind of regarding the protected ranking, actually. Um, so it comes from Harry, uh, who's a, a new correspondent. So I was tell, thanks for your question, Harry. He says, really enjoying the podcast. I couldn't help but notice when scrolling through the US Open draw to see the name Attila Balash uh, against Daniil Medvedev in round one. This guy currently has no ranking and has not won a tour-level match since 2020. He appears to be turning up for a... He appears to be using the protected ranking system to get a nice paycheck before he retires. It seems rather unfair on players that are playing regularly and close to a main draw spot to just miss out, just to just miss out to Balash. What are your views on this? Um, he provides some good context that Balash has won just four tour-level matches in 2020. He only played two in 2021 and lost both of them. Uh, he's played a total of seven games last season from two, so one total of seven games last season from two slam matches using protected ranking, and he's won eight games this season from three matches. Um, it, it, I mean, that does seem pretty ridiculous and 
probably you would hope the tours would look at that and go that we need to fix something here. Incidentally, he won two games against Daniel Medvedev and then takes home a check for seventy or thousand dollars for doing so. Um, yeah, I don't actually know Attila Balash at all. Um, he skipped my um, eyesight for the last well, barely played tennis for the last five years by the sounds of it. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the protected ranking thing is it's a difficult one. There's no real obvious answer, to be honest. It's there for a reason, and it certainly helps a lot of players. Mm. Um, and it, it's complicated how it works. I don't. I kind of get keep getting it explained to me, but I don't really get it. It's it's an av- it's your average of your ranking. It's an average so it's of your the... ranking of the three months before you get injured. Yeah, and yeah. then the, yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah, and then it depends how long you're out for as to yeah. how many you get. But there's no time limit on how how long it takes you to use them. Mm. Um, but what's particularly strange about it, and I know this through um, Colin Beach, Kyle Edmonds' coach, told me, that you're limited to actually what you can play because he was getting hammered, kind of, for using his protected ranking for main tour events. Mm. Um, but if you're with inside a certain ranking, and I don't know what it is, you can't enter challenger events in singles. So if your mm. protected ranking is is there, whereas Kyle wanted to actually play challengers and he would have used his, his um, protected ranking to get in challengers, but he couldn't do that. And he could get into the, t- to the 15s and 25Ks. Yeah. So there was no real, you know, there's no real logic in, in that at all. I think that kind of needs sorting. But at the mm. same time, um, Beach was telling me that Kyle's, he's basically got one protected ranking left. Right. And he's not going to use, he's going to use it for one of the slams, which you would. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, you know, being out injured, you're not getting paid. Tennis are, tennis players are, are self-employed. Yeah. And the slams are, I think for singles players, about 55 grand for yeah. first round. So, you know, you can't blame anybody for doing that. Um, so I, I don't really, you know, it's one of those. I think tennis, tennis has probably got bigger issues to get its mind around the, the protected ranking, which in most cases actually work, I think. Yeah. Although you have to say, in this case, Attila Balash quite clearly just on like a a retirement yeah. streak. Yeah, and somebody there was some talk actually that Steve Johnson has actually retired now, who the boys played first. Yeah, round. yeah. But he wants to play in. Um, he wants to play. In, he wants to officially retire in Indian Wells next year because I think he's from California. Right. Okay. Um, he wants to official, but then apparently he's not going to play between now and then and use some sort of protected ranking to to enter that. Which again seems a bit, you know, uh, what what the suggestion there was that he's not going to play between his ranking is whatever it is now. I don't know what it is. Yeah, but he's going to use his protect. He's not going to play, and there's you don't have to prove that you're injured. You just have to not play. Yeah, and then he's not going to play, and then use a protected ranking to get into that. Hmm. Weird. Yeah, I can't yeah. really think. I haven't got. I mean, Harry. It, it, I hope. I appreciate. We haven't given you a full answer on your question, but. If you've got an idea of how to fix it, or if anyone does, um, drop us an email like Harry did, tennisunfiltered at gmail.com. Lots of you have recently, lots of you telling us about the uh, UK TV coverage. I, kind of what I'm going to do is I think we'll talk a bit more about the UK TV coverage once the tournament's over because uh, there's always going to be teething problems with these things, and there have been some, and I want to kind of give Sky the chance to redeem themselves in the last week when everything gets a bit more serious. But thank you, and keep your feedback coming. It's really interesting. Um Calvin, I don't know what, if you're aware. What's been, what's been the problem? Because obviously I've not seen anything on Sky, so yeah, what's been I, the general gist? 
I mean, the general gist is that they're doing they're they're running main event almost like a sort of soccer Saturday style thing, where if there's good tennis going on somewhere, they'll throw to there, which has its pros and cons. I mean, it, it means you don't miss it, but the multi court coverage and court select is not that easy to access. Um, it, for example, if, if you're watching Sky on laptop or desktop or anything like that, you can't get onto the multi court coverage. I have right. Virgin Media at home. I can't get onto multi-court coverage on my TV, so I, I can only do it on my phone, which is the only thing I have the app on. Um, so there's some frustrations with that. Um, and also, like whenever you're, I think whenever you're running a main channel and you're choosing matches, people, are, especially in the first week, people are always going to be like, why are you showing this? Why are you not showing this? Which, you know, yeah. I, um, so that I do, I, I heard um, the tennis podcast talking about how there was a big stink in America because one of the cable providers and ESPN had a fallout and ESPN got pulled from one of the cable Oh, yeah. Um, I, I wondered what had happened there, actually, because when I went to put it on, when I got back to my hotel room the day before, I was watching it one day, and I put the same channel on, and there was something, some sort of strange statement on the channel that they, yeah. they wouldn't be showing anything by this provider. So there was just nothing on in its place. It was <laughs> just a statement on the screen. Yeah, it's, and I it's actually, a... I didn't. I meant to actually go down and ask what was going on at the hotel <laughs> Um, thought it was the hotel that had a problem with it, but right. <laughs> no, there was a major dispute between um, Disney, who are the parent company of ESPN, and one of the cable firms of the US, who who you know supply over the rates. Basically, they're charging, and so right. yeah, like okay. fifteen million people or fifteen million homes lost ESPN during one of their quite big properties. Wow. So um, yeah, it's also and also like the football season's about to start. The baseball season's just getting to quite like a, a pinch point because obviously the play um, the playoffs are not far away. So it's quite. I mean, clearly that that's not a coincidence. Like you want to do this kind of thing when it's uh, it's uh, most serious. But yeah, quite funny, really. Um, just to come back to New York as a whole, Calvin. I mean, it's obviously your first time coaching in the U.S. Open and experiencing Flushing Meadows. Um, how have you found it? Like what what what's been better what's been worse than, than other grand slams i'm intrigued to to know your comparison i mean I, i'd love it it's not everybody's cup of tea but i absolutely love it i mm. had the time of my life here this week and you just really get a feel i mean the hotel the official hotel that i'm in at the minute that we've been in all week it's bang in the center of manhattan you come out of there it's a 10 minute walk to times square and 10 minute walk to empire state building and 20 minutes to central park and you just really get a feel of the city you've you're in i mean new york's one of those cities that you you know you're in it anyway because it's it's just built that way isn't it yeah. um whereas whereas for paris and wimbledon I, I don't you could be anywhere unless unless you choose a hotel that's next to the eiffel tower i guess yeah then you could actually be anywhere or, or you know bang in the center of london hmm. whereas this feels like the tournament just feels like New York. And then you've got to, when you drive there from the, the, the drive from the hotel to the, the tennis center, sort of you go over the bridge of the, what, what river is it? Is it the Hudson River? Or, yeah, it's the Hudson, uh, I think. Yeah, into, into Queens. And you see all that, you know, and then on the way back, you see all the, the, all the, the skyscrapers and the high rises and what have you. It's, it's just a great tournament. And then I like the grounds as well, to be fair. It's well set out. It's a good size. Um, the, Every court seems to have some kind of seating on it, which you can't say for Wimbledon. Um, but also, seating <laughs> Wimbledon and the French don't seem to have got it right. They 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 either have seating. Wimbledon has uh, like some of the courts have standing but no seating, whereas the French only has seating and you can't watch anything from standing. Whereas the U.S. Open everywhere has 
you know, you can you can wander across and have a look in on a court, um, or if you want to watch it for longer, you can go and sit down on it and that kind of thing. And now uh, the main thing, what has struck me is that, uh, and and again, I think this is something that re that Wimbledon, well, all of the tennis tournaments really have to get a grip of, is that they do let people wander in and out. Hmm. There's no, they'll try and stop you walking in during a point, like du- during a point, they'll put your hand up and then some people ignore it. But between points, you want to go and get in your seat, crack on. And it's just, you, you know, there's no reason why you can't do that. And I said to the lads, you know, did it, did it bother you? And they were like, you know, for the first, you know, first five minutes, it was a bit strange. There's a lot of coming and going, but then you just stop noticing it. It's just yeah. like any other tournament. Yeah. And it just, you know, and it just, uh, that's one of the things where tennis is just completely in the dark ages. Like Wimbledon holding people in a queue. Um, Wimbledon and the French Open, and most of the tournaments holding people in a queue for 15 minutes sometimes while while matches are getting played. It's just ridiculous. Especially with, with tennis getting longer and slower and games getting longer. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, at least this year at Wimbledon, and I think at the French as well, they they started letting people in at one love, you know, because yeah, now, because I mean, I remember timing it like there genuinely is ninety seconds between like the first and second game of the set in singles these days because the yeah. the players stop at the chair, they have a drink of water, they yeah, rearrange yeah. all the clothing. So at least I've done that. But yeah, there's, I, there's no reason why you can't do it because it does not bother the players yeah. at all. If you have it, what and we've said this before, what bothers the players if there's nothing happening, then suddenly something happens. Yeah, yeah. And the same with sound. Whereas if there's constantly people moving, no problem. Yeah. Um, I also saw, Calvin, from your Instagram that you went and had a hit on, on Arthur Ashe early one morning in the rain. I mean, <laughs> just just because uh, I've only been to New York once last year for, for the Open and, and I found Arthur Ashe the most remarkable sporting stadium I might ever have been in. I mean, what's it like to stand in the middle of it and, and actually try and practice? Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. It was quite strange, actually. What I, it's not rained. I think it only rained since I've been. It only rained for that about half an hour or maybe about an hour um, at that, that time. And basically what happened, We it was the day that we played our first match and we had our warm-up on the match court. And myself and Barry, Julian's coach, had got there early and we'd said to the lads, we'll meet you at the court. Mm. So they were finishing their sort of physical warm-up in the gym. And as me and Baz got there, it's sort of a couple of drops, and then it suddenly just started tipping it down in no time. And and the player's gym is in the Arthur Ashe building. Yeah. So we texted the lads, going, it's raining, we're coming back. And then as we came back, I said to Baz, like, you know, let's have a look, see if the court's free. And this was it, because it was early morning, because we were on first that day. So I think the the, the match started at 11, so our, our match warm-up was 930 Right. So I said, let's just go and see if it, if Arthrash is free. And it was, there was no one on it. So we just said, right, tell the lads, see if, you know, tell the lads to come here and we'll, we'll play until we get kicked off. And we got, we got full, we got a full match warm up in it. I love uh, that idea of like, like the, it's, it's the classic thing you say on like a park court, isn't it? So oh, you get yeah. on, you know, we booked yeah. it from two, but like, we'll just play until we get kicked off. And yeah, there you yeah. are in like the biggest tennis stadium in the world. Yeah, yeah. We, and just then hit... we, had a t- we had a typical image, like really lowered the tone of it. One of the greatest stadiums, the roof was up. And then one of the lads, we had a bet if anybody could hit the roof with the ball. <laughs> um, and ba- Barry claimed that he could and like fell about 40 metres short of it, I think, in the end. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a huge stadium. like, And it is... 
it's a great view. Like if you, get, I went on the first day that I got there. I just went because I wanted to go and sit on the furthest seat away from the court. And I guess it would be the furthest seat away from a tennis court anywhere in the world. Yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, Unless you're like you know in Miami where they have that stadium in a stadium. If you went and sat yeah. at the other end of the football field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, so then I, I went and sat up there. But then if you look over, you turn round, you see the whole of the New York skyline. Yeah. Um, in it, and it, it's just you know it's. Some people say it's too big. I actually, because when I went and did that, um, Sabalenka was playing, was practicing. Um, so there's no one really on there. But you can see what's going on. I, I yeah. thought that people had told me, you know, you can't, you can't even see anything. You can see. You know, you, you lose a bit of, if you're watching from the side, you lose a bit of depth um, perception in that yeah. you don't really get an idea of the spin. But other than that, you can absolutely see what's happening in the match. That, that, yeah. That's not a problem. Um, but yeah, it's a phenomenal arena, phenomenal stadium. And I went mm. and watched, went and watched a couple of matches there. We went and watched because um, it's obviously right next door to the New York Mets stadium. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we went to watch a little bit of baseball um, one of the nights, and that finished really early. We got there in, I think we got there in the fifth innings, and it was over half an hour later. No, oh, jeez, um, how weird. Yeah, well, it was apparently both teams were playing their starting pitchers. So, oh, right, um, yeah, so they just rattled um, through. And what, to be honest, it's all we wanted as well. Me and a couple of the lads said, like, <laughs> we'd like to experience it and and do that, but then we didn't want to stay and watch a whole match. So then, But then when we came back, we got our car back to the hotel from the tennis. We said, like, how about, you know, let's go and see if we can get an ash and watch a bit of, I think Alcaraz was playing. Mm. Um, and we saw one point and then Dominic Cope had pulled out. <laughs> um, that's brutal <laughs> and then I went and watched just randomly I went and sat on and watched a bit of um, Tommy Paul against Davidovich Fakina mm. um, the other day so uh, yeah well, it it's like strange... the strange the strange thing about it is though is that it's never full and it's never remotely yeah. full yeah and I'll say it's never full it will be full for the finals and that kind of thing but every other time that I went on and I went on maybe seven or eight times just to have a look, I would say it was never more than sixty percent full. Uh, I would say, and, and yeah, I sort of noticed the same thing. Other than I was there for the Serena, you know, the thing, so that it was pretty full that night. But I, I think there's also like, and we have a lot of American listeners who may disagree here, and, and I'd love to hear from you. But it feels to me a bit more like American sporting culture there. Like if you go, if you go to Test cricket, for example, quite often that will look seventy odd percent full. Maybe yeah. slightly more, but it's because people are off. They're getting beers, they're going, getting food, and you know, the the one of the great things about going having an ash ticket is you can go and you can go to other courts, you can have a wander around, you can go and get cocktails or whatever it is. So uh, there's an element of that as well. But yeah, I mean, presumably it sells out most days, and people are just off on. I mean, certainly that's the excuse the organisers always give is like, oh, well, you can go and do other things. Um, yeah, I think I, I don't know what the somebody told me that they 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 only sell enough tickets for Ash in the whole grounds, but that can't be right. There's more people than that in there because there's ground passes. You can buy ground passes. Yeah. Like, yeah. So they were saying that if ev everyone in the grounds went to Ash, it'd be full, but that can't be right. There's definitely more than more than that people in the. The yeah, games. I can't think what the exact numbers are, but that doesn't that doesn't make sense to me at yeah. all. Yeah, um, um, I mean, it's when one of the days we came back from practice, and it was when the the night session was coming in, but there were still matches going on from the day session, and it was absolutely heaving that day, hmm. and around about that time, 
Um, yeah, yeah it's, there's a lot it, of people in there. It's a site that doesn't have many walkways, and so like in yeah. that bit, that bit between Ash and Louis Armstrong is just gets absolutely yeah. rammed. Yeah, it's um, like a big square, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, but well, um, a few things that I, I didn't quite get, like again, I don't know where. I guess it's maybe always happened that you get people like they'll go and where the players come in and out of the changing rooms, which are again in in Arthur Ashe. Um, there, there are like adults who will stand there sometimes with their kids or sometimes on their own, just waiting for the players to come in and out. Like you've paid 180 quid to just go and stand there with one of those giant tennis balls for hours on end. <laughs> yeah, um, go watch some tennis, geez. But yeah. then, I, then I, it, that's the thing I do often say to people. Like we, I think because you get a bit immune to it because you, we're both the same. Like I remember when my mate uh, had his parents at Wimbledon. And we, you, as as media, you can take them up to the media bar, which looks over court fourteen or whatever it is. And uh, I said to my mate, I said, "Oh, look, there's uh, there's Tim on his way past. You know, we see Tim Henman all the time. Like, you know, we yeah, don't yeah. say hello to the rest of it." And his parents, oh my god, there's Tim Henman, and like they got such a kick out of him just walking yeah. past. And it just kind of, it kind of makes you remember that these people are, su- you know, and and our listeners will be the same. Like these people are heroes, and and you just get a bit immune to it, and. For some people, just a glimpse like that is such a big deal. And that's a great thing about tennis tournaments, especially the first week, is players still have to get to the court. Like, and there's, you know, there's yeah. no secret tunnel to court yeah, three yeah. or whatever it is. They just have yeah. to get there. So I, I suppose it's kind of fun in that way. But um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, any any significant? I mean, Calvin, this has been overwhelmingly positive from you, which I, I think most listeners will be a little <laughs> bit unfamiliar with. Uh, any any big uh, Flushing Meadows gripes? Um. No, don't think so. It's incredible. Um, the food, yeah, the food any good? Food very good, very mm. well priced as well, very reasonably <laughs> priced. Um, yeah. I mean, as always, if I'm going to be this, is not really against Flushing Meadows. The standard of chocolate in America is absolute crap. Oh, it's because of the awful. Weird, weird, it's the weird milk rules they have, isn't it? They, is that what it you is? Know about that? <laughs> yeah, they can't sell chocolate with. I don't know whether it's pasteurized or unpunched pasteurized milk. Um, and that's the good shit, is it? Well, it's apparently they, they, the milk that they use for all chocolate in America is um, like the long life milk. Oh. They don't use like, um, and that's why it tastes different. That's why even Cadbury's and everything tastes different in America. Yeah, it tastes awful. I mean, it, yeah. like really, really bad. Yeah, it's apparently it's entirely to do with them. It's illegal to, to but it's strange because when you buy a pint of milk, that's normal milk. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Can't put, you can't put it in chocolate. Apparently. Although I have to say, as someone who drinks like um, coffee with skimmed milk in it, I found it pretty hard to track down skimmed milk in New York. And the first time I ordered a coffee, I forgot because sometimes you say a latte, and I forgot to yeah. mention that I didn't want it with butter in it. And because um, the full <laughs> the full fat milk the Americans have was just horrific. And literally, I set I set it down for about a minute. I went and got something, came back, and there was a skin formed on the top of my coffee. <laughs> and it, I drank it, and it was stuck on my moustache, and it was the <laughs> most disgusting thing that has ever happened to me. I was nearly vomited into the cup. Um, but, yeah, no, I can't um, can't think of anything really good. negative to say about it. It was excellent. Um, just an excellent tournament. Maybe if we'd have lost first round, I'd have been here moaning about <laughs> everything. But, um, it's been bloody tra- hot. Traffic's, well. of it, traffic's obviously oh, been yeah. brutal. Well, especially yeah, driving from Manhattan to Queens, literally any time yeah. of day is is absolutely horrific. Um, yeah, 
people people who listened to the mini pods last year will know I was really enjoying the Long Island Railway, which because I was staying by Penn Station, so I could just zip in and out of Mets um, right, okay. Willet Point, which is ideal. Um, let's talk a little bit about tennis. I think we probably should. Um, seems rude not to. Uh, I've just watched Calvin. Um, so f- f- we are going to fill in the whole of the third and the fourth round in the next twenty minutes or so. Um, so there will be some things we miss out on, but some we don't, and. I'll draw on Calvin's expertise. Uh, maybe the one we should talk about, Calvin, is Jack Draper's run to the fourth round, which just ended a couple of minutes ago uh, in a four-set defeat to Jack Draper. Um, uh, Andre Rublev. Uh, Andre Rublev, sorry. Yes, thank you. Um, a bit of a funny one, really, because obviously great for Jack to get to a last 16, but sort of hasn't really beaten anyone apart from Hubert Hurkacz, who by all accounts was sick as a dog. I mean, good, important to get the points given what he's been through this year and he was defending quite a lot, but... I'm sort of struggling to get too excited about this run, given he's not beaten anyone of note. Um, I mean, I think the thing what you would get excited about is that he's come through fit and, mm. you know, with his body in good shape. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's a massive bonus mm. for Jack, um, uh, you know, in the, in the last year, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, you've still got to beat Hubert Hurkacz. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those, you know, I think he's... And with his ranking, like you say, his rankings dropped down so much that mm. you've got to give say fair play to him. And he's, you know, he's beat them all pretty comfortably as well. Yeah, yeah. And also, um, I suppose you know, Michael Moe, who is a really fun player to watch, but you know, he was a wild card. He's not inside the top one hundred, at least he wasn't before the tournament. Um, you know, playing with a home crowd, and you know, Jack is someone who's struggled with the pressure of tennis at times. Like you know, he's those cramps against Nadal in Australia, for example. We always talk about how players don't cramp in practice, and that. It is a, a psychological thing as well as a physical thing. Yeah. So I suppose to get up and, and be able to get up for those challenges. I, it was really interesting, actually, Calvin. I, I heard James Trotman because they've started to really work out how to use the fact that coaches can coach all the time now. And they really okay. had the mics turned up in the Rublev Draper match. And Trotz was saying um, he was he was two break points down, Draper. And James Trotman was saying, enjoy the challenge. Let's see if we can get through this. Enjoy the challenge. I thought that was a really interesting little insight into the kind of relationship. I mean, you obviously know Trotz quite well. But he seems like a really kind of perceptive coach as well as maybe a technical one. Yeah, he's very much that. Um, deep thinker. Yeah. Great lad um, and excellent coach. Mm. And that doesn't surprise me, you know, using messaging like that. I think is good stuff and... Um, you know that, like I say, that that's the sort of thing that a good coach would be saying to him. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, it's interesting you say that that they've turned the mics up. I saw a little bit off topic. I don't know whether you saw John Millman having a moan about coaching uh, on court. He, he is day. very active on Twitter these days, John Millman, isn't he? Yeah, but he's kind of always. I, I, I actually don't know him that well, but the people I know him say he's a really good lad, John right. Millman. But I um, I disagree with him on almost everything. Um, he said well, something about it doesn't yeah, add I anything have the tweet to the. Here. Yeah, he says coaching from the sidelines adds zero to the product. Even more distracting watching the coaching on TV. Players should always have been left to figure it out themselves once they entered the arena. Yeah, I, I go on, Calvin. I, I mean, I, I can't disagree more because it absolutely does add something to the product. You're there, James, telling me what Trot said. <laughs> and so you know, people would people who are watching it would be saying, you know, that the people are fascinated what managers say. I'd love to watch a football match if the coaches were mic'd up. 
Yeah. You see in basketball sometimes they allow the mics to go into the timeouts and that kind of thing, and it's fascinating when you can see that. Yeah. Consequently, tell you what doesn't what no one cares about when they're watching. Ask four hundred people why they like tennis and find out how many people say, "Well, I just really like that they have to solve their own problems." <laughs> like. I, Preach. No one's going to say that. I don't get. I don't get why te- the, the exceptionalism of some tennis people when they, they go up, they bang on about this thing of like they having to solve their own problems. Yeah, like like they still would. Like they <laughs> they, they, st- they still would. And also, what what's the what? I don't get why that makes tennis interesting. Yeah, like what you know? I just, I just don't like. And again, I said it before, like. You're telling me that boxers don't solve their own problems when they go and get in the ring. They they do exactly what their trainers say, and that's what wins and loses them the matches. Like it, it's just a nonsense, and I, I don't yeah. get it. He also had a bit of a rant about Simona Halep as well, which again, this is one of those things that I don't like because I'm sure he's been on tour with her, and I'm quite sure, I'm certain through. Well, I know that he's quite friendly with Simona Halep, mm. and and he was trying. I don't like it when that people try and make, try and sort of claim the innocence of somebody just on the basis that they know them. Yeah. He wasn't claiming the innocence, says she's been treated dis- disgracefully and this kind of thing, which, yeah. you know, if she's innocent, then she has, but, you know, I mean, she might not so be innocent. There's not a huge amount, I mean, just, I mean, I know the Simona Halep case quite well and have spoken to a lot of people around it. There's not a huge amount I can say about it. What I can say is it's pretty bloody complicated. And it, yeah. you know, it, the thing is, it's very easy for a player to say, "I'm innocent. Why haven't I been proven innocent yet?" And and it's like yeah. it's very hard for because it's an ongoing case. The ITAA, for example, can't stand up and say, "We'll hear all the reasons we think you're not innocent." It's like well, it's an ongoing investigation. Like we can't do that. So I appreciate it's frustrating that it's gone on a long time. And it, you know, if it comes out at the end that she that she is found innocent, we should have a conversation, and maybe there really should be a conversation about how players who are suspended and then you know have their suspensions lifted compensated for that, because yeah, yeah. you know, in theory, they they have lost the chance to earn there. Um, so yeah, I look, Simona Halep is now part of the Muratoglu machine, who are obviously a very good PR machine. Um, they are handling all her PR matters as far as I certainly were last time I spoke yeah. to anybody. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a real, I think it's a problem tennis has that look, and it's, it's not just tennis, it's all sports. You know, if anyone who's been following a Connor Ben case in boxing, for example, will know that the problem is you've got athletes who are happy to protest their innocence as publicly as they possibly can while privately paying very expensive lawyers to, to yeah. fight their innocence, which they're allowed to do and it's important they are. But who pays for the doping companies? You know, I know for a fact, and I know this for a fact, that a very high-profile doping case in the UK was not pre- was not contested by the UK doping agency because they were worried that they would go bankrupt because yeah. they were like, this is this is too expensive. And it was like, we, yeah. th- we think we might have the person involved. But we, we can't afford to uh, we can't afford to pursue it, and that's the problem. You know the ITAA. You know I almost certainly I don't know the financials there, but I think I can say with relative confidence they're probably underfunded, but because yeah, because yeah. most anti-doping yeah. agencies are, and so I, I think yes, it's all very well standing up, and as you say, Calvin, it's a bit rich to stand up and say, oh, they're my mate, they're definitely innocent, and I make no um, 
I make no comment about Simona Halep's innocence or guilt on this case. It's ongoing. Well, I think he said something like, I don't remember the exact tweet, but he said something like, regardless of what's happened, this treatment is a disgraceful or something like that. He, thought, goes, well, he dis- says, Simona is in tennis purgatory due to the constant delays in proceedings from the ITA. Her colleagues should have her back and broadcast it in the public forum. Allow her a p- proper and fair hearing. If you walked in her shoes, you'd at least want that regardless of the findings. I mean, it's all we're all saying you want a proper and fair hearing, but like, this is legal process, you know. This is yeah. This is what happens before hearings, like. <laughs> and also, that a colleague should stand up. Like, well, what? What if if she's been cheating? She's been cheating her colleagues out yeah. of tennis matches. Yeah. Like you know, you're going to stand up and go. You, you know, if if you think so, if somebody's been found guilty of cheating, you yes, you want the players to stand up. But the players who are not her friends. Yeah. To, to go like you know, this is a disgrace. We want Simona's case dealing with straight away and it's yeah. not like like you say james it's not like the ita are just sitting on it's not like it's on a file at the bottom of a <laughs> you, you know a, a backlog yeah. they're working on it and mm. you know they have to find the, the best way and and the, again one thing that i do know is that in all the sport i've watched i've seen you know the years i've watched sport a lot of people have been found guilty of of doping there aren't many of them that claim yeah I cheated yeah you know yeah, exactly. all, there's always a yeah, but this happened, or yeah, I didn't know. And yeah. ironically, the only one who actually came out and said he cheated eventually was Lance Armstrong. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and now after, after, the... after years of claiming he absolutely didn't. Yeah, and now there's something weird. I mean, yeah, quite. Um, and yeah, as I say, there's no there's no implication here that Simona Halep is guilty or innocent. Um, the the fact is she's been suspended, and the reason that people are suspended provisionally rather than play under protest is because doping is basically strict liability. If something appears in your bloodstream, it's like speeding. Yeah. If you if you, if you are recorded going over the speed limit, there is no excuse. You cannot yeah. get away with it. Um, and doping is safe. You can mitigate, and you can say, well, it was <clears throat> contamination, which um, I'm led to believe, uh, trying to think. Anyway, uh, you can say it's contaminated or... Um, or any, you know, you you can mitigate, and it, that will be accepted, and they'll give it. They call it no fault, um, and they say, fair enough. We're not going to give you a long ban. The suspension of eighteen months stands, and and you know, people do come back from that. But that is unfortunately the that's the that's the stand you have to take in doping yeah. because you know there will always be people with more money than the doping agencies, um, and I, I think probably I would always rather be on that side rather than the other one. But yeah, I, I think I, it's something as well that you know, and somebody raised this point to me the other day when I was talking about this case, and not specifically with Simona Halep, but a lot of these athletes who are extremely wealthy, in that they they start, they go on these sort of, um, they say often take chefs with them, and, and they have these very strict diets. And, you know, it's even more strict liability when that's the case, because it seems a bit more shady, if you, if you know what I mean. Like, mm. there are certain players, for example, who you won't see in the restaurant at the US Open eating the same food as 90% yeah. of the others. And, you know, so if, say, if, say one of them gets, you know, you, you could argue, well, if you'd have been eating the same food as the rest of us, you wouldn't have, you know, this might not be a problem. But instead, yeah. it's always a, a steak from a cow that has been um, <laughs> found doping or whatever. <laughs> yes, the, the context for that is in Mexico, they very often use... Clenbuterol as a fat strip yeah. on uh, on cows, and quite regularly athletes do test positive. Yeah. Um, the uh, tennis player did, didn't he? Um, the doubles player, the Colombian doubles player. Yeah, yeah. Rob Farrell. Uh, 
Uh, I mean, I should check that before we just randomly start naming people who've got a dopey well, it's him, judge. It's him, or his, it's him or his partner, I can't remember. Oh, good, all right. Well, we've got a 50-50 chance of definitely libeling someone. Uh, yeah, it was Robert Farah who escaped a doping ban after the ITF investigation accepted his claim of contaminated beef, which which is a common um, a common thing in, yeah. in Central America. I remember a whole under-23 football team testing positive for it, and basically they'd all gone to the same restaurant the night before the game, and yeah. <laughs> so they all did it. It does happen. Um, right, I tried to talk about tennis, but as always happens, we got distracted. Um, who else has kind of caught your eye? In the men- I mean, it's been a funny, a funny old tournament. I said this to George just before... Elena Rabakina and Iga Shontek lost at all. We haven't really um, learned much about the women's draw yet. And then, of course, we learned a load about the women's draw. In terms of the men's draw, um, I, f- I wonder who of the quarterfinalists, Calvin, and at the moment we know we have uh, Nova Djokovic, Taylor Fritz, Ben Shelton, Francis Tiafo, Andre Rublev, and Carlos Alcaraz. I mean, Ben Shelton's the only unseeded one in there, and you were kind enough to give me some quotes for a piece that I wrote one interview I did with Ben Shelton. And he's hit 249 mile an hour serves that have caught the eye. I mean, is this is this the coming of age for Ben Shelton that we've all been expecting? Yeah, I mean, before this, before this tournament, he hadn't won back-to-back matches since the Australian Open. Yeah, and now he's in the quarterfinals, and he's had decent wins as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he's looked pretty good, but you know, he's 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 had good profile of opponents for him as well. Right, I think you know he's, he's had guys who not going to hit him back, hit big back, and and take him. You make him do a lot of defending. You know, he's had guys who he can. You know, pretty much do all the attacking against. Hmm. So, presumably, on the basis of that, he's playing Francis TFO in the quarterfinals. I mean, is that someone you would look at and go, "That's a real challenge for him"? Because there is going to be power coming back. Uh, yeah. Although Francis's results are so up and down, yeah, you just never know. Hmm. Um, yeah, it'd be, in- it'd be an interesting one. That entertaining match, I think. That. Yeah. Uh, the-, the thing that cracked me up about Ben Shelton, I saw someone the other day, like, like showed a still of his serve and they were breaking down why it was a terrible service action and i was like have you seen it seen his serve we're gonna come out and start messing around with that are we like come out and maybe get you like oh is this ball toss in optimum position it's like or is i don't even know whether they were saying it was or it wasn't or somebody else had said it was wasn't or what but the guy who i know said it is a good coach i know him but like yeah come on like, you know, it's like, do we have to change everything about technique? We're talking about Ben Shelton changing his serve. Got an absolute like... scud missile. Yeah, and and that that is, I mean, that does happen, right? Like, you wouldn't teach anyone Andy Roddick's serving technique, would you? No, no. <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, and it's actually similar action, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, ben Shelton's and Andy Roddick's. Is that right? Um, yeah, it's big knee bend, kind of like straight up. Yeah. Um, Motion, but yeah, and absolute rockets, both of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I've enjoyed it just because uh, I published an interview with him, and it, it, usually that means they lose first round. So it's rare that I don't curse someone with uh, with the interview. Um, although I did How was very... he in the interview. He's a, he's a nice kid. I yeah, think. lovely. I did it earlier in the summer actually, and and it was uh, I I didn't put this in uh, in the interview. You'll ex- understand why. But someone I'd been doing I'd done quite a lot of research for it for once. Um, and uh, just a couple of minutes before, someone said, oh, you know, he's dating uh, an athlete. I was like, oh, is he? Oh, okay. What's she do? Heptathlete. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Looked her up. Anna Hall, yeah, really good. Like, you know, one of the best in the world. And like third or fourth question, I was like, oh, so you're obviously on tour in Europe for the first time. 
Um, but you know, you you, you must have. Uh, it's nice to have your missus. She's obviously going around Europe on tour as well because she just turned pro or just went onto the pro circuit. And he like looked over at the press guy he was with and smiled. He's like, actually, we broke up like a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, oh, I'm so <laughs> sorry. But oh, it was. But they credit right. to him. He was like, he was like, yeah, but she is an athlete and she's a really good one. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, you know, you've not shut me down here. And yeah, he was just like a pretty affable guy. And I kind of, I mean, he what? He's 21 now. Like, he kind of was a a sort of classic kid who just like hasn't yeah. seen much of the world and is oh, 20 i beg your pardon um and just hasn't got huge amounts of life experience but he was quite open actually that's what really surprised me often with the young guys like you know they're very reserved and they don't want to say anything wrong yeah, but yeah. you know he they don't realize that anecdotes are funny and he yeah he kind of does like he's got quite good emotional intelligence i think and he was talking about how the first time he got to europe they went and played esther real and the night before uh, he was playing Dominic Team, they went out for like a seafood dinner and they they got like a massive seafood platter. And obviously yeah. sea, seafood in Portugal is spectacular. And he basically had a bit of everything and then spent the next 16 hours like vomiting his brains out. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I really don't know what it was. So I don't know if I'm allergic to it or it was bad or whatever. And I said, oh, did you? Because I couldn't remember. I said, oh, did you, did you still play? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got chopped big time. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was quite funny because then he played Dominic Team in the second round in the US Open and yeah. Dominic Team had the bug that's been going around and uh, yeah pulled out after two sets. Have yeah, you been yeah. aware of this bug that's lying around, Calvin? Um, I've not, but I know and the lads, to be fair, have been eating quite a bit of it, but there's a sushi bar in there that I, I wouldn't be eating sushi in the, the heat that... <laughs> It's that it is out here. I know yeah. that much. But the lads actually have been getting... Well, Jules actually, not not Henry, but Jules, I think on the first day, um, or he got like a first training day, he got like a, a poke bowl with sushi at the top of it and some eel sauce. Wow. And he ate it at about half 10 in the morning, which was to me was just like mind-blowing. But then he felt pretty good after it, so he got one before every match. So he's been having one before he goes on every match. But he, right. he was fine. But so it's not the pokeballs. We know that. <laughs> no, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's something to do with the sushi. To be honest, because <laughs> it's like, like I say, it's pretty warm and it's not. Um, I mean, it's air conditioned in there, but you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Ben Shelton plays Francis TFO in an absolutely stacked schedule on uh, on Arthur Ashe tomorrow because you've got. Coco Goff in there as well. Novak Djokovic up against Taylor Fritz, which, I mean, do you give Fritz any chance there, Calvin? I mean, you know. I mean, I think you've got to do just because he's absolutely steamrolled everybody. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I, I don't think he'll beat him. I think, um, I think Djokovic will end up beating him pretty comfortably. But you've got to say, you know, it's it's you know, it wouldn't be surprised if he gives him a bit of a run there. Yeah. I do think, and maybe it's just, you know, availability heuristic, but I do think that, that Indian Wells thing of beating Rafa um, in the final there and like everything that he went through to play that final, it did give me an idea of his mindset. And actually, funnily enough, just after I interviewed Ben Shelton, I interviewed Taylor Fritz and I asked him about Shelton because he also came on tour young. And the thing he said was, you've got to learn to lose a lot. Like when you first go on tour, you've got to learn to lose a lot. And yeah. it, it made me remember that Taylor Fritz has been on tour for like seven or eight years. Like, you know, yeah. he's, he's, he's quite baby-faced and, and he's, you know, he's only, what, 25. But apparently he's tour a long dating time. a, um, some tennis Instagram influencer yes, or something. this is true. He's on the, on the front of the New York Times this week, somebody told me. Yeah, she's a big deal. Morgan Riddle is her name. She's the sort yeah. of, 
the the key you see a lot of her in the netflix doc put it that way right she's yeah, a, a key, no it's a key influencer um let's just move on to the women's draw briefly i mean there's really only one result i really really want to talk about which is Iga Shronset losing to Elena Ostapenko. I was kind of fascinated to read her quotes afterwards. She was talking about how usually <laughs> she starts matches badly and then works her way out of it. And against Ostapenko, it's a total difference. Um, Calvin, this is turning into a bit of a problem player for Iga Shronset. She's 0-4 against Elena Ostapenko, which I find weird because it's not like Ostapenko is, you know, a bigger hitter of the ball than, say, Arena Sabalenka or you know, Elena Rebecca necessarily, but is it just that she can get so hot that she takes the racket out of Shontek's hand and she hasn't got a solution to that yet? Yeah, and I also think maybe a little bit in her head. You mm. know, that she's when once you've 0 and four, you kinda of start thinking like what what do I have to do here? Yeah. Um you know, and, and the thing with Ostapenko as well is that she absolutely believes that she's the best tennis player in the world. Yeah. So she you know, whereas I think a lot of the girls with Shontek that she's kind of in their heads now just because she's been so dominant. Yeah. Um, and also, consciously or unconsciously, Shrontek does a little bit of shithousing, mm. like, you know, manipulates the rules sometimes. And there's nobody who does more than Ostapenko. <laughs> so it's like that kind of stuff doesn't work with her. Yeah, so yeah. I think all of those things tied in Yeah. are, um, you know, are the reason why that she has more chance of beating her than anyone else. Is she one of those, what is it Jürgen Klopp called them, mentality monsters? Elena Ostapenko. Well, she's men- kind of not really, is she? Because sometimes she just sacks it off. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like you can say that every time she comes out, she's just a raw competitor. Like, sometimes she just fancies it. Hmm. Yeah, I can't, I mean, I find, again, I, I've met her a couple of times and she really makes me laugh. Like, she's a really funny person. She just says what she wants. And yeah. You know, uh, uh, and you see, so you get it on court, and I think, I think that's really attractive, just to to the fan that, like, you know, yes, she's a shit house because she really wants to win, but like you said, like she's very rarely just like, like sort of hiding her feelings, like she's all out there, and yeah. I, I I think that Coco Goff match would be really fascinating, because yeah, like Coco Goff's a little. Not an extrovert. She kind of lets her tennis do the talking to an extent, but you know, she likes getting the crowd up. The New York crowd will go absolutely mental for her. But I wonder yeah. if that pantomime villain role, I think Ostapenko might really love it. I think oh, that sure, might be a yeah. problem. I'm sure, yeah. Hmm. Which um, way would you see that one going, Calvin? Top of the draw, Ostapenko, Goff. Uh, I mean, Goff's playing well again, isn't she? And I'm, yeah. I, I'm now not accepting any of this nonsense from people <laughs> saying I was wrong because... The the guy who I said was coach, he's clearly not. Brad Gilbert's her coach. Like yeah. that's that's clear to everybody now. She's even sort of acknowledging that. So yeah. we can forget that idea. You think that guy's <laughs> just basically a hitter. Um but um Yeah. Um it's uh, it's funny. I mean her press conferences are just brilliant, Coco Goffs. Like she's just dynamite, isn't she? Like yeah. like just an absolute star. She's um, just such a Again, I, I think it's a little bit of Taylor Fritz syndrome as well. Like, she's been on tour for so long that we, you know, we kind of forget that. Even though I know people always talk about oh, teenage sensation, blah, blah, blah. But you, you really get it when you see her talk because yeah. she's so composed and she kind of has everything on her, um, you know, that she never really gets caught out by a question. Like, I yeah. can't ever remember her going, 
Oh, uh, and then just like pulling what what most players do for people who don't watch every press conference ever. Most players, when they get caught out by a question, will just like push out the stock answer. Like they have yeah. a little cog wearing moment, and then they just like training kicks in, and they yeah. kind of have their response. Whereas Goff always has a little cog wearing moment, and then has a really thoughtful and interesting answer. Um, I don't know how much has changed about Coco Goff's tennis. I mean, you know, I suppose in the end she's she's only in the quarterfinals and, you know, she has dropped sets along the way against Ziegmund and against Mertens and against Wozniacki. Um, I saw Brad Gilbert saying he's not changed the way she hits her forehand at all, which I thought was interesting because I guess he only came in a couple of weeks ago and probably if you want to make really big technical changes, you know, a couple of weeks before the US Open, your home slam isn't the answer, but maybe just a bit more belief, Calvin. I think it could only be that, yeah, confidence, belief. I think that's where where she's really changed, which is, it happens when you start winning matches. Yeah, you know, the foreign's just the same. She just probably is not so stressing about it so much. And also, I, I you know, Marta, I spoke to Martina Navratilova about it. Um, that Fanta Ice Lemon's going down well, then, Calvin. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> um, Fanta Pineapple, actually. Oh, pine! Oh God, they don't yeah. sell it over here. That is good. That no, they do in a lot of shops now. Oh, really? Yeah, like you know, like the corner shops and stuff around. Oh London. yeah, you can pick it up. Dodgy there. corner shops, but yeah, okay, good to know. Um, oh yeah, I was talking to Martina Navratilova about the Coco Goff thing, and I sort of said, "Oh, how's Brad Gilbert done this?" And she was, she said the same thing. She was like, "She's not hitting it any different, but Brad Gilbert wasn't that good a tennis player, and he did really well. He knows how to hide a weakness." And I thought that was a really—I don't know whether that you buy that at all, Calvin. But I thought it was a really interesting way into it. I mean, it's one of those, like, people used to say that about Brad Gilbert. And it's kind of true. But he also, mm. you know, he was a good tennis player. He wasn't <laughs> one of the top five tennis players in the world, probably. Yeah. But, you know, he's a very good tennis player. And it's all right saying he knows how to hide a weakness. But, I don't, one, I don't think she's hiding a weakness, really. Mm. Um, you know, I don't, and, and two, you can't hide a forehand. <laughs> like, you, know, you can probably, you know, you can, like, hide a drive, hide a, if you do, drive backhands dodgy you can do some slicing in that hmm. you can't hide a, a drive forehand you're going to hit them more than any other shot <laughs> I mean tell that to Benoit Pair. yeah well he doesn't uh, hide it that's the problem isn't it <laughs> oh Calvin incidentally that, that's reminded me that I was quite ill a few weeks ago and I had a very weird fever dream that you had Benoit Pair had taken you on as a coach wow and <laughs> wow. just like looking back on it thinking about it I, I was like I was in my head. I was like, "Oh, great! Like, there'd be so much great content out of this." And then, like, looking back, I'm like, "I can you? It would have been fucking horrendous. Like, it, like you would have hated every minute of your life." Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus! Um, yeah, more of a nightmare that than a dream. <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, Is he still playing? What's he doing? Uh, it's actually a great question. Um, in my dream, he was clearly. Uh, yeah, he's he's playing some challenges in Italy. Uh, he okay. played US Open qualies, uh, and he made the semis of Challenger in Como. And tomorrow, he is playing uh, Marco Trungoletti in a Challenger in Genoa. Okay. I, I, I don't really know why, if I'm honest. I mean, it must be strange for players like that, though, because he's not that old. What is he, about 30, 31? 34. He's 34. Oh, he's 34, right. Okay, yeah. Must be strange for them. Yeah, it's particularly strange for him, because you get why there are certain people who you, they just love tennis, love competing. And they'll yeah. just like Tommy Robredo did. They'll just keep on dropping down. As long as all they really care about is playing tennis matches. They love yeah. playing tennis matches. Whereas Benoit Paire doesn't like <laughs> tennis or competing. No, he hates it. Like hates both of them. 
and there isn't much money in challengers, so it can't be for that reason. So it makes you really do wonder what what is he doing? Yeah, I don't really know. Uh, yeah, I can't get I can't get my head around it. I, I mean, he. I suppose it should be noted that Bumar Pear is an extremely complicated bloke, uh, and is like he. You know he's got documented mental health issues, and, and like you can also see it on the court. Um, that it's not easy, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, just one last question for you, Calvin, or, or kind of topic maybe. Um, I just want to talk about the Brits very briefly because we talked about Jack Draper, but um, we didn't talk about Dan Evans and Cam Norrie. Um, I mean, Cam Norrie, maybe, maybe the word. I mean, this is no disrespect to Matteo Arnaldi, but like. I'm pretty sure George said on our podcast before that match, "There's no way Cam Norrie loses to Matteo Arnaldi." Uh, and, I mean, that's and... a bold statement from George. <laughs> I'd say that I was, I'd even if I was on that one, I'd have called him out on that nonsense. Because yeah. in in um, in Norrie's form at the minute, he can lose to anybody. Yeah, and Arnaldi's a, Arnaldi's a decent player. He's not mm. a world beater by any stretch, but he's a decent player. So yeah. I I thought at all of Cam's matches this week, although he's won a couple pretty easy. Like I thought, you know, he's in that kind of form where you think could easily lose that. Yeah. And I thought the first first round when he played Shevchenko, I thought could easily lose that. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, and then equally, I mean, you know, or not equally, but quite opposite, Evo up against Carlos Alcaraz. He got a set off him. I mean, at, at this stage yeah. of his career, and it's probably the most he could really expect, isn't it? I mean, it's funny because I said on the way in, like I was talking with Henry on the way into the match, and I said, you know, it's it's interesting. I'd be interested to know how people think in that way because in tennis you've got to be, in, in particularly in like Evo's tennis, and I didn't speak to him before the match, but to him a bit after. But in any of these players, you've you've got to be both. You've got to know enough about the game to know, you know, levels and standards and that kind of thing, which. On that level, you'd be looking at it thinking, I'm in for a tough afternoon here. But mm. also to be that good as, as Evo is, you'd also have to be a little bit deluded to think that you can beat everybody. <laughs> yeah. So it's, a, it's an interesting sort of paradox that I think um, into how how that works. But, you know, he said, I, I watched a bit of it. Um, we, were, we were practicing at the start of it, but then I went, went to watch a bit and it was. Um, I'm trying to think of the way that there was a period at the end of the third start of the fourth where if he'd have got a little bit more, it could have got interesting. Hmm. And he just, and he said to me, Evo said to me, I, I just needed something and I, I didn't get it. Um, just like a, like a little, you know, dead net cord here or there or just something. Yeah. Or just like an error, you know, he hits an error or like Alcaraz, it's an error or Evo, you know, a couple of big aces when he needed them or something. And, and, you know, but, Alcaraz, you know, he's just a phenomenal player. He's just some player, isn't he? Hmm. Uh, I'm trying to remember your pre-tournament prediction, Alcaraz or Djokovic, Calvin, but you can have a redo now. Alcaraz or Djokovic now? Uh, I I, I thought Alcaraz before. I think Alcaraz will still beat him. Hmm. I didn't see much of that five-setter against Lazlo Jerry where Djokovic came from from two sets down and dead and buried. I mean, do we just not trust Djokovic two sets down in Grand Slams now? No, I sent into the group, and I, I fell asleep when it was six four six four. And I sent you and George uh, when it was four six four six. I sent I sent a message going four six four six. I think I said six three six one six one. 
and it was just the other way around. Like it was the most predictable comeback. I'd have, I reckon he was still odds on when he was two sets to love down there. Yeah, I'd have had him yeah. odds on when he was two yeah. sets to love down. Crikey, uh, what a time to be alive! Well, Calvin, what's your plan? Have you got a little uh, tour around the US plan now, or what? No, I'm coming home. I, I, I was semi thinking about taking a little tour, but it's kind of taken it out of me. Um, yeah. The, the, this week, so um, I'm coming home tomorrow. I've taken a day today to do a bit of sightseeing. Went down to Greenwich Village, did a little um, Bob Dylan wo- walking tour. Nice. So a lot of the um, places where Bob Dylan sort of lived and performed when he first moved to New York, mm. um, and then. Um, you know, my, my, gonna... my controversial Bob Dylan opinion is I think he's one of the worst singers ever to have had, well, number one. Um, well, I mean, strong disagree. He's not a great technical <laughs> singer, but he, he sings Bob Dylan songs better than anyone else. Um, uh, well, and, he's, okay. and he's a genius songwriter. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll give him that. You, re- I get, you know, so, yeah. so you like, I'll give, him, I'll give him that. Got to yeah. give him it. Got to give him it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I was going to... Um, I'm gonna. I don't fly while late tomorrow night. So tomorrow I'm gonna try and go up to Harlem and have a nice. little look around there. Um, Lovely. Yeah. So that's uh, keep your wits about you. Yeah. Apparently it's all right now though. Yeah, I think there. it's not as bad as it used to be. It's, yeah. you, I think you oh, have to give it. I was gonna go the other day because I thought it's a, basically for anyone who doesn't know the geography of New York, it's it, it's it's Central Park and then it's Harlem. Yeah. Like um, so, it's at the other side of Central Park from where we are. And I started walking up Central Park. I must have been walking 20 minutes. I, I looked in my, um, I put my map on to see where I was. And I reckon I was less than a quarter up the way up Central Park at that, at that stage. So I thought, no, nah, I'm turning around. I'm not going yet. Yeah, it turns out Central Park, quite big. I've made that mistake yeah, yeah. myself. And not strictly a park, is it? There's roads through it and everything. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I yeah. didn't realize there was a technical definition, but... Yeah, it's not just a big, you know, not just a massive field with trees in it. Although it is a field with trees in it, but there's roads run through it and things. Right, okay. As far as I, I mean, yeah. as far as I can tell, it's just lots of people smoking weed most of the time. But well, yeah. they've this is a th- this is one thing I have noticed about New York this time. They've legalized weed, and the place absolutely reeks of it. Yeah, everywhere. Um, I mean, everywhere, to be honest, yeah. you're. I mean, you're you're obviously staying up by Grand Central. I was staying in Midtown, where the smell of weed was like a, a kind of sweet release from all the other smells that midtown has yeah, which is like true. trash human feces yeah um, yeah what whatever yeah. the smell of the risers is like that yeah. smell that comes out of the ground is just horrific yeah, so i was yeah. quite grateful for marijuana but yeah it, when you hear players complaining at flushing meadows about the smell of weed on some courts it's totally legitimate the whole of queen yeah. smells like that it's it's ridiculous yeah well, I think the whole New York, like I say, they, I don't know what it was in the last year that they've legalized it, or was it? Yeah, I'm trying to think that? about where New York fell, but um, yeah, it might have been a bit a bit sooner than that. But yeah, I mean, yeah. it's okay. it's rife, and 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 we don't have an opinion on that. I reckon uh, we will hold no. our opinions on the legalizations of drugs because yeah. there's only so much trouble we can get into in one week. We've talked about drugs, but but not those ones. Um, that's all yeah. we've got time for this week. Uh, great to have you back, Calvin. Um, very safe journey home. Look forward to going through the knockout stages uh, of... or I say the knockout stages. It's all knockout. <laughs> the latter the stages. <laughs> it's because I'm going to the Rugby World Cup on Wednesday, so I'm, I've got two okay. heads on at the moment. But, uh, yeah, okay. safe journey home, and uh, great to have you back.
Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.